and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping on Thursday, May 13th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today we are joined via video conference by Joanne Cannon of Politico. Hey, everybody. Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. Nice to be here. And Rachel Kors of Stat News. Hi there. Good morning. Let us start with the who could have possibly seen this coming state of the prescription drug price debate. A group of 10 moderate Democrats has written to House Speaker Nancy Pelosi expressing concerns about the House drug price bill, H.R. 3. It's not a very big group, but 10 is more than enough to actually prevent the bill from passing, assuming no Republicans vote for it. The moderates, including several who voted for the bill last time, say they want less sweeping ways to reduce drug prices. In other words, they want to go a little more lightly on the drug companies. The whole thing kind of reminds me of Republican efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act when it wasn't going to happen. Members were happy to vote for it and send a message, but when it got real, they suddenly had second thoughts. Somebody tell me I'm wrong about this with the drug bill. I think you kind of hit the nail on the head there that, you know, the stakes are different this time around um, when Democrats are actually governing. And, um, you know, I think their dissension is notable just because of the way the bill was developed. Like that specific bill was developed behind closed doors. You know, they didn't go through the committee process and go through a whole lot of revisions like it did, but it was kind of pushed through when Nancy Pelosi had already decided what she wanted to do. So I think you're seeing kind of the reflection of that and just a step back and some questioning of kind of what is the Democratic Party's way forward on drug pricing. And it's been clear on the Senate side for weeks now, but it's also clear on the House side, um, given the letter this week, that they don't really know yet. It's looking like there was a reason why Biden left this out of his uh, already going to have to push it uphill uh, you know, uh, American families plan, right? And you have to remember that some of the uh, moderates who are pushing back on this come from areas of the country where the pharmaceutical industry is really intertwined into the local economy. Actually, most areas of the U.S. where pharma is sort of headquartered or based tend to be Democratic strongholds. And that always makes things complicated once you come down to legislating, because it becomes not just a healthcare issue, but it can become like an economic jobs issue sometimes for their districts and membership. So I think that's a big factor um, on some of these folks' minds. And the other thing in some of the comments they've given to the media about their pushback, you can see that they've really bought into some of the industry's messaging. The big argument industry always has is, you know, if you cut our prices or profits, we're going to not be able to save your life with new innovation and cures. And that's that's a really difficult thing to prove true or false one way or the other, though. So some health economists, 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 <laughs> it's been a long week. They've tried. And I think that's an argument that really resonates with people. They get nervous if they hear that. And they're saying, well, you know, no one's going to be helped if the drug doesn't exist because we hurt the industry. And so it's interesting to see that those lines coming from these Democrats as well. 
I've been covering this since the late 1980s. There have been efforts to do something about drug prices since the late 1980s. And this has forever been the argument. And you're absolutely right. It's really hard to sort of push back on if we're not allowed to earn lots of money, we won't have, you know, the innovation that we need to find that cure for cancer or find something to treat Alzheimer's, you know, all the things that the, the, the diseases that we don't really have drugs for yet, but we really want drugs for. And it is it has been very difficult to do anything to rein in drug prices for all of these years because as you point out there's bipartisan desire to do something about drug prices but there's also bipartisan desire to protect the drug industry in places where it's really strong. I don't think this means that nothing happens at all though. I mean this bill was never going to get through the Senate. The House bill was never going to get through the Senate even on a reconciliation basis. It was it was really unlikely that that entire package would get through the Senate. And the people who voted for it, who didn't really like it, knew that it was going to get changed. So, I don't know what the next step is. I don't know how they're going to decide to change it, but it doesn't mean that there's suddenly going to stop talking about drug prices. It just is not going to be a sweeping house bill, but we knew that a year ago or two years ago, time blurs. I mean, yeah, almost two years ago now, I think. Um, We've never thought that the um, entire House Democratic bill was going to end up being the law of the land. People want lower drug prices. Republicans and Democrats want lower drug prices. But I think given the rapidity and success of the vaccines has probably helped the drug company's image. And But, you know, they're also making billions of dollars. So one could make the case that you could make a few billion less and still make many billions as an industry. There's, there will still be a search for some kind of sweet spot. Uh, Meanwhile, in Affordable Care Act news this week, other Affordable Care Act news, the Department of Health and Human Services tells us that more than a million people have signed up since President Biden reopened enrollment in February. A big chunk of that is likely because the COVID relief bill increased government subsidies in a major way. But there was more robust than expected sign up even before those new subsidies took effect. Have we underestimated people's desire for health insurance or underestimated the role of reminding people that it was available, which the Trump administration pretty deliberately failed to do. There's a real big difference between saying, well, this really sucks and you don't really want it, even though you're legally entitled to it, versus saying, this is a pretty good deal and you should take another look. And that, in a nutshell, very oversimplified, is the difference between the Trump and Biden administrations. You know, we want you to get this because it's good for you, not perfect, but take a look and might help you versus who wants this garbage. I think this is actually more people have signed up just in these, you know, last few weeks then signed up t- during the entire open enrollment at the end of 2020. I mean, I'm, I am surprised by how robust the signups have been. I think most people did not expect, I mean, they expected, you know, some people to sign up who'd missed the open enrollment. This is a lot of people. This is, I mean, a big, significant increase in the number of people who are on the insurance exchanges. Right. But the increase, the real increase in enrollment has been fairly recent after people did, you know, Congress did change the subsidy structure. People are getting more help. So the earlier part of the open enrollment period was the system that existed before with better messaging and more encouragement. Now we're at a system that's been enhanced, plus the better messaging and outreach. So the change in the subsidies is is really significant. If you couldn't get one before and you can get one now, that's a big difference. If you got one now, but you're getting a bigger one now, and those are both true for people, depending on your your economic status and yeah, it's a better deal. You know, when you tell them this is a good deal, some of them will listen. (laughs) 
Apparently. And while we're talking about the ACA, the Senate moved a step closer to approving a new administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, a position that also oversees most things ACA. But it's not quite there yet. What happened this week? Well, basically, because the committee deadlocked on her vote, um, there's just an extra procedural hurdle that um, the Senate had to clear to move her confirmation forward. And Senator Schumer did kind of take the step to overrule Senator Cornyn, said, you know, we know you have concerns about the Texas Medicaid waiver, but we're going to move forward anyway and confirm her. Yeah, and we should point out that the that the resistance, this is Ch- Chiquita Brooks-Lashore, who's a former Senate staffer and a former uh, uh, Obama administration official, um, who's, and it, there doesn't seem to be a lot of resistance to her. There's just, you know, as usual, they're using the CMS administrator position to try and exercise some leverage on CMS, in this case, as you say, Rachel, over that, over the, the waiver for Texas, which the secretary got asked about, I saw in yesterday's House hearing. And she got two Republican votes yesterday. Which suggests that, that she'll be approved next week. Yeah. Right. It won't even be June yet, which for CMS administrator, a position that's notoriously hard to get approved, that will be pretty quick. Yeah, but we have a pandemic. This job needs to be filled because there are a lot of other jobs beneath her that have to be filled and they won't be until they get the. I mean, we'll probably see a lot of names coming out as soon as she's, I mean, we're already hearing some of the names. There's no head of Medicaid. There's no head of, of the office that runs the ACA, HRSA, which runs the community health clinics. I mean, there's a lot of vacant, there are a lot of appointments still to be made. Some of those names are already rumored. Whether the ones we're hearing are right or not, who knows? But I think there is an understanding that this is not a time for a gap or an interim or a maybe we'll do it next week. I mean, the same thing. I'm surprised we don't have an FDA commissioner. That's another topic. I wasn't surprised we didn't have one in you know February, but I am surprised we don't have one in May. <laughs> I think she'll go through quickly now. And I think the CMS jobs will get, the remaining jobs will get filled pretty quickly now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's turn to the latest on COVID. It is now official. 12 to 15-year-olds are eligible for the Pfizer vaccine. The FDA approved an emergency use authorization earlier this week, and the CDC's Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices formally recommended it on Wednesday. Sarah, you were following the CDC meeting, and thank you because I was following it through your following it. Um, Anything surprising happened there? CDC's advisors very easily kind of quickly confirmed that the vaccine should be used in the 12 to 15 population. Pfizer was the one vaccine already approved for 16 and up. The other vaccines are only 18 and up. The surprising thing to me was that CDC announced that they're now recommending it's okay to co-administer the vaccines with other vaccines. Previously, um, I know when I went to get my shot, I, I was asked, you know, have you had a vaccine within 14 days? Are you going to have another vaccine? And they were cautioning against that. Although, kind of saying like if there's a really immediate health need, it might be okay. They sort of switched course pretty fast yesterday. What kind of irked, I think, some of the CDC advisors is they don't really have any new data. They're just kind of saying at this point, we're generally comfortable with this vaccine safety. We know in other cases, it's fine to administer vaccines together. So let's do this. I think the sort of unspoken thing was there's been a lot of concern in the adolescent population in particular and in children that they haven't gotten their routine immunizations over the past year. I think 12 year olds get about three usually at that age. So they want to try and kind of make it as easy as possible to catch up on those shots and get the COVID shot. And there were some people on the advisory panel that felt like that's fine. There were others that felt like it's a little bit worrisome to do that without any data really showing that there's not going to be any issues, even if it's just that people may have more what's known as 
react to genicity, which is like you just don't feel great when you get the shot. Even that they felt like, you know, could create issues for people in just terms of perception and wanting to get vaccinated. How concerned are we about parents who, you know, who may have been vaccinated themselves, but are resistant to get their teenagers vaccinated? Kaiser itself had a survey last week, um, and I forgot the exact number, but it's pretty high. I mean, there are people who don't want to get vaccinated and don't want their kids to get vaccinated. And there are other people who did get vaccinated as adults, but are worried about the unknowns for their kids. It's understandable. I mean, it's a new shot. Parents, you know, we're hardwired to worry. We do worry. I mean, my kids are, I should say that, you know, my kids are both old enough to be vaccinated and they both are vaccinated. That doesn't mean I don't understand parents worry. So you have to treat it with respect and explain things, what's known, what's not known, and and be honest with people. You know, kids can get sick. Kids can get, you know, severe inflammatory disease. The name I'm forgetting, Sarah probably can correct me. Kids can infect other people. If you want schools to open, if you want sports to come back, et cetera, et cetera, you know, vaccination's a good thing, but you can't just sort of assume that every parent's going to be comfortable with that the day the CDC announces it's okay. Some of the misinformation and sort of disinformation that's come out around these vaccines, I think maybe might make parents more nervous about getting their children vaccinated versus themselves. So one of the very much debunked concerns has been about do the mRNA vaccines impact fertility? And so, you know, if you're a parent and you're kind of well beyond that sort of time in your life, you may not be concerned at all about that. But if you're thinking about young children, you may be more concerned. So it's just having physicians and trusted providers kind of having to re-go through some of those facts and information for parents. And of course, it's apparently awkward that it's the Pfizer vaccine that's available to the younger kids because that's the one that needs to be kept the coldest and it's sort of hard to divvy up. You know, it would be ideal if you could send this out to primary care physicians and pediatricians. And that's apparently going to be difficult with Pfizer, right? Right. This came up a tiny bit at the meeting yesterday. Um, I think Pfizer has submitted some new data to the FDA that'll make it a bit easier in terms of cold storage, size of vials and so forth for pediatricians offices to be able to administer it right now, particularly if it's a smaller pediatrician practice, that's probably not feasible. So I think the hope is down the road, more people can get it at the typical provider's office they're used to going to. And there's, I think, a lot of research that shows that when people are a bit hesitant about getting vaccines, they're most comfortable when they're, you know, provided information from the provider they've come to know and trust. So that will be helpful. And that's, of course, been kind of a assembling block in our rollout for adults, too, is that most people aren't getting it at their you know, their usual primary care physician. There is a there is discussion within the administration about how to get it into into pediatricians' office above all and family family practitioners. And it may be that they do it in larger practices before they can get it into smaller practices. But if you think about that's where kids get their shots now, right? Adults often see a doctor but get their shot at a retail setting or at an office setting or someplace else. Adults don't get all their shots. I can't remember the last time my I got a regular shot in a physician's office. But kids, yeah. I mean, did my, did my kids get all their shots at the pediatrician's office? Yeah, they did. So, I mean, Sarah's got a two-year-old. She gets a lot of shots at <laughs> pediatrician's office. Just about happy birthday time, too. Um, so the other thing is, like, if you're a physician, if you're a pediatrician and a family comes in and they're nervous or they have questions and you reassure them, They say, okay, we're ready to do this. It's way better for the doctor to say, give me 30 seconds, run to the refrigerator, get the shot versus, or the nurse will be in here in five minutes or whatever it is, rather than saying, great, there are lots of places in the community to get one now. It's pretty easy. Go find it. I mean, you, you want to seize that 
moment of opportunity. And that's particularly with the kid population. They do want to figure out how to get it into at least some pediatrician's offices. It is in community health clinics where children do get care. Uh, it is in public health offices, clinics, um, where some kids get their care. But the pediatrician outpatient setting is, it'll help getting kids vaccinated if they can figure out how to do that. So I want to add a layer to this. Pfizer is also applying for a formal full license for its vaccine rather than the emergency authorization it and the other vaccines have been operating under. How important would that distinction actually be? Well, I think that's debatable. I think in theory, it should be a big distinction because the basic sort of regulatory criteria for an emergency use authorization is substantially different and lower in some ways than for a, you know, a fully approved vaccine in the U.S. However, because of all of these sort of political issues we have around vaccines in this country and trust issues, um, and just because vaccines are given to healthy people who may have other ways to protect themselves from the disease, the FDA really sort of upped their emergency use authorization standards. They sort of referred to them as EUA plus for these vaccines. And they've already kind of come really close to meeting the licensure standards. They'll really just have a tiny bit more safety data. FDA will have a little bit more time to look at manufacturing processes and so forth. That being said, it's hard to know maybe the perception among the public will change. It, it Does the language make a difference to them? I'm also, Again, on the flip side, it's not always clear to me how much the average person appreciates the distinction between the word authorization or approval. I think Joanne and I were joking the other day online because I, um, the New York Times headline for the Pfizer adolescent authorization said approval. So, you know, it's not quite clear how much the um, public perception has really been impacted by the, the nuance of the regulatory process here. I think one of the other differences is there is debate about whether businesses, schools, et cetera, can mandate vaccination. That's my next question. So. Well, Julie, we've known each other so long, I saved <laughs> you the trouble of having to ask it. There, there is some unresolved debate about whether you can mandate in a workplace or a school or other, other setting, whether you can mandate something if it's under an emergency use as opposed to authorization. It's not settled law. There's some discussion and fight going on about it now, but it would become moot. Um, it would be easier to mandate vaccinations. There, there are other controversial things about whether that is a good idea or not, but just legally, it would become easier to do that if it's a full-fledged approval rather than an emergency use. How, how big? I mean, it looks like mandates are going to be sort of the next big political fight and after masks. Now it seems like mask mandates are probably going away, but we're going to have vaccine mandates. And it's pretty clear that private organizations can require people to be vaccinated. I guess the government could, but the backlash would be pretty intense. I mean, how are we going to make sure? I mean, people are already, you know, in terms of taking their masks off. It's like, well, how do I know other people are vaccinated? You know, short of people actually wearing pins or shirts that say, I've been vaccinated which has a whole long issue itself. I mean, wh what do we think is uh, is going to happen with this whole mandate debate? Is it is it going to consume the rest of 2021? The Biden administration has kind of punted, I think, a number of times on this. They don't want to be the ones to prescribe vaccine passports, as some people have been calling it. And I think they want to put that on the businesses or the private sector to have to make those decisions and deal with the ramifications. But I think it may come up more at the local political level with school districts and um, states and counties making having to think about whether they're going to make decisions in that front. And that's sort of where we're more used to um, 
those types of mandates coming in in the U.S. Also, I think this is something that like healthcare providers are going to be thinking about as well, just because, you know, a lot of times like hospitals or health systems will require their employees to have other vaccinations. And I think some um, health systems have kind of tested the waters on whether they, you know, can require their employees to get it and have gotten a lot of pushback. So I think you know, this full um, approval could you know, give them more firm ground to stand on just because if administrators believe there's a benefit to patients and you know, that the evidence is there, but their employees aren't on board, then I think that just creates some really um, difficult workforce um, issues as frontline workers already were dealing with burnout and just so many other um, issues over kind of the past year. So I think that'll certainly be a debate without and within the health system too. No, I mean, there's also usually some kind of um, accommodations and exemptions when there are mandates. Um, from the example Rachel's talking about, it's also it's often the flu shot. And if a healthcare worker doesn't want to get the flu shot, they're not fired. They have to have other extra layers of masks and gloves and gowns and so forth that they wouldn't necessarily, I mean, they, they're wearing them in the pandemic, but they wouldn't, more than they would normally have in whatever normal looks like. Similarly, there's religious exemptions. There's obviously some kind, sometimes there are healthcare exemptions because people with immune compromised conditions. What does the mandate look like? What are the alternatives for people who don't? I mean, an office could say, if you want to come back in the office, you need proof of vaccination, but you're not going to be fired. You would just have to stay, you know, you would continue working remotely in those professions where remote work is possible. I mean, we may see a hybrid of mandates and loopholes and alternative arrangements. We may see, I mean, I read somewhere, I only read the headline, I didn't read the whole story, so I don't know the details, but sports v- venues who, that are having vaccination seats and non-vaccination seats. So that you know, this section, you can come, it's outdoors, it's pretty safe, but that, you know, the vaccinated people get to be by themselves and the non-vaccinated people, you know, on the other side with masks. So we may see more outdoor dining for non-vaccinated people, indoor dining for the vaccinated. I mean, there are all sorts of infinite combinations that we will be fighting about for many months to come. Yes, I think there, there will be uh, there will be no lack of uh, of controversy on this going forward, even as we try to resume some semblance of normality. Um, we're just the, the libertarian streak in the United States runs extremely deep. So the Biden administration overturned another health, Trump health policy this week, reinstating anti-discrimination protections for LGBTQ people, at least in health care. This was a second of the Affordable Care Act that Trump officials reinterpreted, and now Biden officials are reinterpreting it back. This is a pretty big deal, yes? Um, Yes, it's a big deal. This was a controversial policy established by the Trump administration. As rapidly as our society changed about gay rights in general, I mean, phenomenally rapidly in 10 years, it was transformed. We are now having a huge fight uh, about trans people. And a lot of this healthcare argument is a reflection of that larger fight we're having. And whether it's school bathrooms or healthcare or other things, it's a big deal. I mean, it is restoring those protections. One thing that's always sort of confused me is when you hear people talking about how, you know, you can't force doctors to treat them. The supporters of those conscious clauses for healthcare providers, you know, you can't force them to do this surgery. Well, it's a really high, you know, gender reassignment surgery is a really technical, complicated surgery. It's not like you can just sort of issue a court order and say, go do it. I mean, people who don't want to do it are not going to train to learn how. So that's sort of a red herring. Other things about prescribing hormones and uh, other, and this wasn't just about gender assignment. This is just healthcare protection. And it was really broad. It was, you know, 
you know, someone answering a phone in a clinic wouldn't have to provide information. So um, it was a broad rule that is being scotched. There'll be court, I think there'll be more court battles about this too, because there were court battles in the ACA provisions back, you know, eight or 10 years ago. I, I don't think this is a, the last word. And at, and at the same time, there's a lot of states taking um, action on the flip side of it and pushing measures that really are going to restrict the rights of transgender people and particularly younger people and that will impact their health care and their ability to kind of transition or get, like Joanne said, hormonal treatment or other treatments as an adolescent or as a minor will make it a lot more difficult. So there's a lot more kind of discrimination happening at the state and local level. Yes, I actually, uh, the the human rights campaign, I just put out something this morning that there have been 18 anti-LGBTQ bills signed into law, 10 more awaiting action by governors. Um, this is sort of the new, as Joanne pointed out, in the in the early 2000s, these, there were anti-gay marriage bills, and obviously that's no longer an issue. So this is sort of the new appealing to the Republican evangelical base bills. Um, but a lot of them really do have to do with health care, you know, whether doctors can overrule parents or whether the state can overrule parents' desires for puberty blockers thing. I mean, there's not a lot of gender reassignment surgery going on among minors, but this is really sort of the AMA uh, uh, is concerned about these bills interfering with the doctor-patient relationship, and yet we are seeing them really proliferate at the state level right now. Right. And I feel like it's part of it's a political strategy as well. If you look at kind of how the power balance has shifted over the past year, like it's not an unpredictable development for, you know, Republican state officials to be trying to push the envelope when the Trump administration was so successful in placing so many judges who I think they may feel may agree with them at, you know, so many different levels of the judicial system. So, yeah, it'll just take some time to work itself out. Yes, this is something I think that will be ongoing. All right, well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week. We think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org slash whatthehealth. Uh, Rachel, why don't you go first this week? Uh, Sure. Okay, my extra credit um, is by my colleague Nick Florco at STAT. um, And it's a story about the CDC headlined, um, CDC's slow, cautious messaging on COVID-19 seems out of step with the moment, public health experts say. And I feel like it's a great encapsulation of kind of the larger narrative that we've seen out of the um, Biden CDC team, because uh, we've talked about these, you know, little kind of incidents over time. And we kind of had this discussion um, on a smaller scale. But I think Nick did a great job talking to really authoritative people, you know, former CDC um, leaders and um, public health experts who, you know, just kind of really distilled well, the debate between CDC being cautious on public health guidance and kind of the risk, like the their misperceptions of risk, some people say, and then how that plays out in CD, the CDC risking their relevance um, with people kind of taking their public health guidance. So I think Nick did a great job um, distilling that debate. Yeah, I think the poor CDC went, you know, on the seesaw from last year being understating the risks. And this year, they a lot of people feel that they are overstating the risks. Um, it's a really good story. Joanne. Um, this is from Grist by Adam Mahoney. And the lengthy headline is, there's federal money available to house the homeless. No one's taking it. Basically, this refers to some emergency funding to get the homeless um, out of group living situations like shelters where COVID was spreading. This is not a permanent solution to all 
homelessness in America forever. This was basically a health issue during a pandemic. So 23 local governments out of all the governments in the country, and most of them were around LA, Denver, Chicago, and Seattle, all these empty hotel rooms could have been used for the homeless because uh, they had very high rates of infection and they don't have great access to health care. To have provided a roof over their head and protection from the virus, there was all this FEMA money and it just sat there. Even in like Houston around the time of the terrible winter storm, you could have gotten people off the streets and into someplace warm. It didn't happen. Sarah. So the story I um, looked at is from Kaiser Health News' Sarah Varney. Um, the making of reluctant activists, a police shooting in a hospital forces one family to rethink American justice. And it looks at a mother and father. The father is a immigrant from Haiti. He's a physician and his wife is from Mexico. And one of their sons went to get care for his bipolar disorder in an emergency room. And the emergency department seemed to not really treat any of his psychiatric symptoms and so forth. And his behavior led to an off-duty cop, a, a security officer, shooting him and probably coming very close to nearly killing him and kind of chronicles the family's sort of experience with racism and health in this country. And the father in particular seems like he really did not want to believe that, you know, the U.S. was inherently racist and the impact on the health system and this incident really sort of becomes very transformational to them and how they sort of interact with the U.S. system. So it's quite an interesting piece because you see the situation from kind of each member of the family's perspective. It's really well written and, and worth your time. So mine is a documentary and it's a commitment because it's four hours long. It's called The Crime of the Century. It's currently on HBO and HBO Max. And it's the best single explanation of the opioid crisis that I have seen. It basically compresses 20 years of reporting into a single pretty riveting narrative. It's by the Oscar winning documentarian Alex Gibney, whose work you may have already seen if you watch the Theranos documentary, The Inventor. I wouldn't recommend something that's four hours long and unless I thought it was well worth your time. And if you really want to understand how we got to where we are with opioids, then I think this is well worth your time. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcast. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Yang, who makes us all sound good, even when we're in different places. Also, as always, you can e email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Joanne? At Joanne Kennan. Sarah? At Sarah Carlin. Rachel? At Rachel Course. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.